The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. They are advancing a narrative of Taliban inevitability, right? All of their messaging is effectively, it's only a matter of time before we take over the country. And so you should side with us now if you are, you know, an Afghan on the ground. So they're steadily advancing that narrative, both nationally and locally. And in conjunction with that, they are sitting in Doha, continuing to meet with government representatives, not offering any concessions, but making it clear that that they are there if and when the government is willing to come talk to them and to effectively surrender. And so that's the, the strategy that we've seen the Taliban put into practice, again, as the U.S. has taken its thumb off the scale and begin to withdraw. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for July 27th, 2021. The United States is just over a month out from completing its full military withdrawal from Afghanistan. But as U.S. troops have moved on, the situation on the ground has only gotten more challenging, with the Taliban claiming control over a growing portion of the country. In recent days, the United States even re-entered the arena with airstrikes on the Taliban, intended to reinforce U.S. support for Afghan security forces and dissuade a major Taliban offensive on Kandahar, Afghanistan's second largest city. Whether this will be enough to stave off a broader Afghan civil war, however, remains to be seen. To get a better sense of the state of things, I sat down with Dr. Jonathan Schroden, director of the Countering Threats and Challenges program at the nonprofit research and analysis organization CNA. We discussed how the withdrawal has gone so far, the impact it is having on the ground, and what it all means for the future of Afghanistan. It's the Lawfare Podcast for July 27th. Jonathan Schroden on the state of the Afghanistan withdrawal. Jonathan, we are now a little over a month out from what has become the new deadline for the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, August 31st, which itself is obviously about a week and a half earlier than the original withdrawal target of September 11th. Give us a sense of where we are on the withdrawal. What is the current status of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, the trajectory and how effectively this withdrawal has been executed thus far? Sure. And let me start by saying thanks for having me on. I I really appreciate the the invitation to join you today. So it's worth recapping quickly where we ended with the Trump administration before President Biden decided to withdraw fully from Afghanistan. So when President Trump left office, he had ordered the reduction of U.S. forces in Afghanistan to no more than 2,500. And 
as those who follow these numbers closely will know, right, the Pentagon has various tricks that it can use to get the numbers slightly higher than whatever the White House limit is set. So the real number was probably closer to 3,000, but it was in that vicinity. And as you said, President Biden in mid-April, after a policy review, decided to fully withdraw U.S. military forces from Afghanistan. And so uh, since that time, the U.S. military has been moving out in earnest to affect that withdrawal. And the speed of, of the withdrawal, I think, has surprised a lot of people, certainly surprised a lot of Afghans. And to those who follow military operations closely, I don't think it was the speed of it was actually that surprising. Um, it's worth recognizing that even though the U.S. and the Taliban have a signed agreement, and uh, supposedly as part of that agreement, the Taliban agreed to not attack U.S. forces, um, especially as they are withdrawing. And so the withdrawal has proceeded not under fire per se, but certainly under threat. You know, the U.S. can only trust the Taliban so far. Um, and there are many other insurgent groups in Afghanistan, such as the Islamic State, um, the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan and many others that the U.S. doesn't have such agreements with. And so the withdrawal, while not under fire, was definitely under threat. And, and that's a very difficult type of military operation um, to, to perform, to undertake. And so it's not surprising that the U.S. military would seek to do that as quickly as possible so as to limit the window of vulnerability to U.S. forces during that very dangerous set of missions. You know, in terms of what that actually looked like, the retrograde. So again, when, when President Trump left office, the U.S. was occupying somewhere in the vicinity of a dozen different bases scattered across Afghanistan's territory. Uh, and so it has had to collapse that footprint from, you know, a dozen or so bases to effectively uh, one or two locations inside the capital, Kabul. That's a relatively dangerous undertaking, complicated, right, to shut down these bases, retrograde all of that equipment to a central location, and to get it out of Afghanistan, uh, again, all while under threat from insurgent, various insurgent groups. And so they've managed to do that to get all of the, right, they, they've had to triage what equipment they wanted to um, somehow ship out of Afghanistan or leave behind or destroy. And so, right, it took a lot of effort to, to sort that all out and then to, you know, to actually do those things. Uh, so the military has announced that they've flown somewhere in, somewhere in the vicinity of 1,000 C-17 uh, loads worth of cargo. And if you're not familiar with a C-17, it's a fairly large um, cargo airplane that the U.S. military has. So about a thousand of those full of stuff has been flown out of Afghanistan. They've shipped quite a lot of material by truck as well, uh, mostly through Pakistan to, to various ports where they can load it on ships and get it back to the United States or elsewhere. Uh, and they've turned over a lot of stuff to the Afghan security forces and destroyed a fair amount as well. And so at this point in time, as of last week, U.S. Central Command, which now has responsibility for the mission in Afghanistan, announced that they were about 95% complete, uh, which is to say that they've retrograded the vast majority of equipment at this point. Um, there are no more U.S. airplanes based anywhere in Afghanistan, for example. And the remaining 
you know, military footprint, if you will, is really down to about 600, 650 or so uh, troops, which are either based out of the U.S. Embassy or at the airport in Kabul. And those troops are now no longer under the command of a four-star general, General Scotty Miller, who had been the U.S. Uh, forces commander for the last three years or so, uh, stepped down uh, within the last couple of weeks. And the commanding officer in Afghanistan is now a two-star uh, Navy Rear Admiral uh, SEAL by the name of Peter Vaisley. And so that's where things stand right now in Afghanistan militarily. Now, even as we've seen this withdrawal take place, by most accounts, I, I think it's, it's a fair descriptor, although feel free to disagree, relatively effectively and efficiently as planned in contrast, perhaps, with some prior withdrawal experiences in Iraq, which happened on a very condensed time frame, and certainly in Syria, which happened on an even more condensed time frame in recent years. We haven't seen quite the incidents of facilities being rapidly evacuated, things like that taking place, equipment being left behind in large scale unintentionally uh, or in less than ideal circumstances. But we have seen a change in the security dynamics within Afghanistan, particularly in relation to the relationship between the Afghan government, which the United States and coalition forces, of course, are backing, and the Taliban, which has been mounting an offensive. What's the state of that offensive as we understand it right now? And where does the momentum appear to be? Where does it appear to be headed? Yeah, it's a great question. This is another thing I think that took a number of people who aren't you know, very close watchers of Afghanistan by surprise, which is to say, in the wake of the U.S. announcement and then the commencement of the retrograde from Afghanistan, the Taliban decided to make a very, very strong push in a number of different areas of the country, in particular the north, uh, where they have seized large swaths of rural territory, district centers, almost some entire provinces, for example, in Badakhshan up in the northeast. You know, they've almost seized the entirety of, of these particular provinces. And that push really took a lot of people by surprise. I think for those of us that have watched Afghanistan very closely, especially in recent years, it's not entirely surprising that the Taliban have seized a lot of these rural areas. I mean, they a lot of these areas were very lightly defended by the government to begin with. They had a very light Afghan security force presence there, especially in the north, uh, where these areas were you know, traditionally strongholds of various warlords and militia groups um, and weren't particularly sympathetic to the Taliban. So the government thought they were relatively safe in having a lighter footprint there, as opposed to, for example, the South, uh, which has traditionally been the heart of the you know, Pashtun-led insurgencies. And so, you know, the Taliban made a push up north the fact that they made a push at all, I don't think was particularly surprising, right? I mean, you can imagine as the U.S. leaves, the Taliban feel emboldened to test the Afghan security forces and see how they do, you know, without the U.S. airstrikes support and, and logistics support and advisors and, and all of that. So the fact that the Taliban made a push, I don't think was, was particularly surprising. That they chose to do so in the north was surprising even to me. And it seems pretty clear that, you know, over the last couple of months, what their strategy is, or, or at least what has emerged as their apparent strategy. Um, and that includes a, a number of facets. So the first is this push, again, in the north, uh, which is designed to capture a bunch of areas that 
you know, they had effectively surrounded or again, were very lightly defended in the first place. So, so think of these as relatively low hanging fruit for the Taliban to go after. Um, and they did so both for that reason, but also because these again were the traditional strongholds of various militia groups that they had, you know, fought against in the past. And so seizing these areas was really a proactive and in some ways preemptive move on their part to try and cut the, the potential or actual formation of these militias or reformation of these militias off from their traditional modes of support, a lot of which come from foreign countries or are at least reliant on shipments of weapons and ammunition, et cetera, through various border posts. And that's, that's sort of a second area that the Taliban have targeted are these border posts. So both in the north, but also on the border with Pakistan, um, Spin Boldock, which is a very uh, sort of well-known border crossing, as well as uh, at least one major crossing with Iran, the Taliban have seized these. And really, they've done that for a few reasons. One is to cut off supplies from reaching government-held areas and, and the major cities. Another is to generate revenue. The vast majority of, of Afghanistan's internally generated revenue comes from uh, taxes levied at border crossings. And so the Taliban are now capturing that revenue and denying it to the government. And it also puts them in a position where regional countries have to talk directly to the Taliban because the Taliban are now in control of these border posts that, uh, that these other countries rely on as well. Right. So they've attacked border posts. Um, and really all of this sets them up to then increase pressures on the cities and the more densely populated parts of Afghanistan to pressure them in, in what is really a siege type strategy. You know, they're surrounding the provincial capitals, for example, increasingly encroaching on them and, and cutting them off from the, you know, from the ability to, to receive external supplies through the roadways, uh, even through you know, air corridors in some cases, in a goal to basically pressure the government uh, and generate widespread you know, popular dissatisfaction uh, with the government and to discredit the government. And all the while they're doing this, they are advancing a narrative of Taliban inevitability, right? All of their messaging is effectively, it's only a matter of time before we take over the country. And so you should side with us now if you are you know, an Afghan on the ground. And so they're steadily advancing that narrative, both nationally and locally. And in conjunction with that, they are sitting in Doha, continuing to meet with government representatives, not offering any concessions, but making it clear that, that they are there if and when the government is willing to come talk to them and to effectively surrender. And so that's the, the strategy that we've seen the Taliban put into practice, again, as the U.S. has taken its thumb off the scale and begin to withdraw. We saw a pretty unique press conference take place, I think, in the last 24 hours in Afghanistan with General Frank McKenzie, um, one of the people kind of leading military operations there, talking about Taliban pressure on Kandahar, uh, which would be a pretty major development. The idea that Taliban might be able to take over a major city, something that, at least by my understanding, hasn't they haven't accomplished quite yet or haven't prioritized. And part of the discussion that General McKenzie had uh, as part of this engagement was talking about the support the United States was providing to 
Afghan security forces to this day, particularly emphasizing the role that airstrikes played and the fact the United States had taken in a number in the recent days a number of airstrikes against the Taliban in support of Afghan security forces. Is this a shift in strategy on the part of the United States? Is this move is it a move towards airstrikes or is this a continuation of a pre-existing policy? And what do its limits appear to be? He notably didn't seem to commit one way or the other about the availability of similar air support after August 31st, after withdrawal is concluded. What role is the United States seeing itself playing in the struggle as it unfolds both before and after August 31st from here on out? Yeah, so the the U.S. as it withdrew, I think, or at least from a White House perspective, it, it certainly seemed to me that the goal was to withdraw and to effectively turn this over to the Afghans uh, with some degree of you know, significant continued funding support, but not much else, right? I mean, th- that was sort of the going in proposition was, we'll give you some money you know, and diplomatic support and we'll leave some folks at an embassy in Kabul, but the rest of this is up to you. And, and what we've seen over the last couple weeks here with the U.S. now striking, you know, reintroducing airstrikes and striking somewhere in the vicinity of 10 to a dozen different targets, depending on which reports you read, that's a bit of of backtracking on the position of the administration. I mean, I I don't think they had intended to continue doing that um, as the U.S. withdrew. And and they've been pretty hush-hush about what the details of those airstrikes were, you know, what the intended effects were, whether or not, to your point, whether or not they will continue after August 31st. Uh, no one in the administration will will confirm or deny whether or not they will. Um, and so, you know, a lot of this appears to be the administration figuring out what it needs to do, or at least sort of what is the de minimis amount of support that it can provide Afghanistan without having the country collapse, you know, going forward. And and we're in a real period of flux here, obviously, with the, the Taliban offensive. The government has not responded particularly well to that offensive, either politically or militarily. Uh, and so, you know, it remains to be seen whether the government can get itself into a more sustainable position, both militarily and politically. Uh, and the U.S. is you know, preoccupied with a bunch of different things. Uh, I mean, at the strategic level, right, there's many other things that the administration is concerned about other than Afghanistan, whether that's the pandemic, China, climate change. I mean, there's there's a long list of things that are much more important to President Biden than, than Afghanistan. And in addition to that, you know, with respect to Afghanistan specifically, They've been seized of this issue of um, Afghan interpreters and you know what to do about the special immigrant visa program. So that has taken a lot of the air out of the room in terms of people working specifically on Afghanistan have been consumed by that issue as opposed to other things they might be working on, uh, which is not to say it's not an important issue, but you know nonetheless, there, there are a sort of limited number of people focused on, Afghanistan these days, and that has consumed a lot of their time. So things like, you know, what does the future uh, airstrike capacity look like? Where would those come from? Are we going to continue to do those? As well as things like, how are we going to continue to help the Afghans keep their air force flying? Just before this podcast, I was reading a report that talked about uh, roughly a third of the Afghan air force's platforms are grounded right now 
uh, due to maintenance issues because a good number of them are or have been uh, fully maintained by U.S. contracted personnel. And the vast majority of those contractors have left Afghanistan along with the U.S. military. And so there's a lot of questions about the Afghans can't maintain, you know, a number of their platforms, most notably the, the UH-60 Blackhawks that we've given them, the helicopters. And so how are they going to do that? How is the U.S. going to help them with that? These are a lot of questions that in an ideal world, the administration would have thought through and had plans for prior to the president's announcement, but it didn't. Uh, and so now they have to figure out a lot of this on the fly. And circling back to your question, I think the airstrikes bit of that is another thing that they are having to figure out on the fly to, you know, how much of this do they need to continue to provide? And, and if they continue to provide any, from where is it going to come? And at what risk to continued risk to U.S. forces? You mentioned before that the Taliban was very consciously or has been very consciously cultivating this sense of inevitability, this feeling, whether in the international media, locally, both, that the fall of Kabul, the fall of the government is an inevitability. Taliban is on the march. The United States is not willing to stand up to them, nor other coalition allies. And therefore, that's that's the future, and people need to account and plan around that. And of course, you can see strategic reasons why that'd be very beneficial to them. And we have seen this kind of TikTok of Afghan districts fall to Taliban control, the ratio getting more and more dire over recent weeks as additional districts, uh, headquarters, and other facilities kind of fall into Taliban control. But how much truth is there to that narrative, and how much if, is that is a strategic communications, a spin. Is, has the Taliban been on such a steady mark as some of these metrics we see played out might indicate? Or is there some juking the numbers in there? Is there a conscious effort to, uh, as some people have alleged, you know, targeting districts that are easily occupied while avoiding population centers that are harder to control, things along those lines that might create the appearance of territorial dominance, but actually create a deceptive sense of just how much control the Taliban is exercising over broad swaths of the country? Yeah, no, that's it's a great question. And, and anybody who's been reading articles on Afghanistan in the recent past has probably seen these maps of district control, right? Uh, maps that purport to show where the government's in control, where the Taliban's in control, and which areas are contested or some you know variation on that theme. And if you look at those maps, um, and probably the most predominant one is one that's produced by the Long War Journal, you see what what looks like a huge number of districts under, you know, huge swaths of the country under Taliban control. I mean, if you do a quick glance at one of these maps, you would conclude, or you'd be tempted to conclude that the Taliban are on the verge of capturing the country, just based on the coloration, etc. And what I would say is, while it's true the Taliban have captured a large number of districts over the last couple of months, many more than they had before, there, there is no question about that. At best, if you sit down and calculate, you know, what, what does that translate to in terms of the area of Afghanistan or the population of Afghanistan? At best, the Taliban currently control somewhere in the vicinity of 50 to 60 percent of the country's territory and population. And so it's about half, maybe maybe a little bit more than half. The Taliban, on the other hand, have come out and said publicly that they control 85% or more of the country. 
And so there is this disparity between the Taliban's narrative of we are on the verge of capturing it all. You know, we control 85% of the country and the truth on the ground, which is that they really control maybe 50 to 60% of the country. And the vast majority of that is rural areas. And it doesn't include any of the provincial capitals of Afghanistan, any of the major, you know, population areas. And so these maps, which are, you know, tempting to believe, um, and in some ways accurate, but in other ways, you know, highly imperfect. What you don't see there is differences, for example, in, you know, rural versus urban territories. And, and the reason that's important is partly because of where people live in Afghanistan, but also it matters in terms of what military capabilities uh, you need to have, right? It, it's one thing to seize a rural district that is lightly defended uh, and sort of, you know, in the hinterlands of the country. It is a very different thing, for example, to try and seize Kandahar, a city of several million people that is heavily defended by dug-in conventional Afghan military forces. And so the Taliban, in my estimation, do not have the military power, which is to say they don't have the, the number of fighters you would need. They don't have the level of heavy equipment you would need. They don't have anti-air defenses that you would need in order to mass fighters effectively against many of the you know, major population centers across Afghanistan to take them and then hold them. I mean, they might be able to overrun some of these positions, some of the smaller cities on various occasions, um, but the ability to hold the, that ground requires a lot of manpower, right? I mean, it requires a lot of people to secure a city of several million uh, individuals. And the Taliban just aren't that massive a force, nor do they have, again, things like anti-air defenses, et cetera. So I'm not convinced that the Taliban have the, the military wherewithal to actually conquer the country purely by force. Now, at the same token, I would say the Afghan government, the Afghan security forces similarly do not have the ability to militarily conquer the Taliban. And, you know, when the U.S. was still present and we were providing something like 80 to 90 percent of the daily number of airstrikes in Afghanistan and providing advisory support, there had been more or less a strategic level stalemate in Afghanistan that had emerged in recent years. Now, at the tactical level, we could talk about whether it was really a stalemate or whether it was moving in various directions. But strategically, you know, a stalemate had been reached. Now, with the U.S. taking its thumb off the scale by, by withdrawing its military support, especially, you know, again, the 80 to 90 percent of the airstrikes that it was providing, what you're seeing is a recalibration of military power on the ground. And it's going to take some time for the two sides to test each other, to you know, determine where they're strong and where they're weak and where they're effectively at loggerheads, and eventually to make decisions about do they think they can continue to make gains militarily or have they reached the limits of what their military power can provide and therefore it's time to try something else, uh, for example, a political track. And how that unfolds over the next, you know, 6, 12, 18 months in Afghanistan is going to be really hard to say. Uh, but I think that's what we're going to see is, is sort of continually, you know, backing and forthing, slugging it out in and around the cities, 
which is terrible for the Afghan people, but is likely to be the case for the foreseeable future. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People By Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you 
constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. There's an interesting op-ed in the Washington Post yesterday or the day before from a former ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, Ronald Newman, who made a case that that I think paints an interesting contrast with the messaging campaign that the Taliban has gone on, framing its rise as inevitable, making the case the United States needs to double down on support for the Afghan security forces, not necessarily in ending withdrawal, but financial support, assistance, potentially airstrikes, he notes as well. I believe this took place before the McKenzie press conference and some of the recent uh, airstrikes, or at least before they were fully advertised and discussed as they have been now. And Ambassador Newman makes the case this, that that this is necessary for substantive reasons, for the reasons you would expect funding and airstrikes to be useful, but also, and he really makes this his emphasis, for reasons so interesting, for reasons of morale, to reverse the sense of abandonment or disinterest that he observes or maintains has been undermining the effectiveness of the Afghan government's pushback, particularly as military forces and security forces push back against the Taliban. Do you see much truth in that? It is true, it seems to me at least, that the United States has been a little coy, I think as you've already suggested about what the actual state of play is going to be after August, implying there's some support on the horizon, but without much details as to what. Is that hurting uh, Afghan security forces to share indecision or lack of clarity there, particularly the United States is intending to continue substantial assistance, or is the reality on the ground uh, less contingent upon the expectations of future support and more about the actual facts facing military forces there? Yeah, I I read that op-ed as well, and I, I thought it was excellent in a lot of different ways especially given that Ambassador Newman had just come back from Afghanistan. It was, it was fascinating to read the things that he heard and sort of his, his personal assessment, somebody with, with long history in the country, as you know. I would say on, on the topic of morale, I, I mean, I think he was right in that the morale of the ANDSF is, is flagging, at least in parts, right? I mean, the, the commandos, you know, the Afghan Special Operations Forces remain their most capable force. They are being used and used effectively in a lot of different places, although there have been a few counterexamples of that. But for the most part, you know, they remain a highly effective force. You have to worry about their morale, though, because they're being heavily overused. uh, And they're not getting a lot of support from the conventional parts of the Afghan security forces, in part because the police, the Afghan National Police, are are hugely corrupt. And frankly, the U.S. and its coalition partners largely gave up on the police, you know, three to five years ago. 
And so the police are, for the most part, a pretty ineffective force in Afghanistan. The army, on the other hand, is something that the U.S. You know, was heavily invested in, spent a lot of money and time trying to build the capacity of, and yet you know, the results are highly mixed. I mean, you have some units in the army that are, are pretty capable, have decent leadership, are willing to, to stand and fight and able to do so. And then you have many other units that when faced with even a modicum of, you know, Taliban attack, uh, and we've seen examples of have turned and fled, right? And then there's, there's examples in between. But, you know, none of that is good for morale. If units are turning and fleeing, right, that has domino effects in other parts of the force. The government uh, centrally has been pretty unable to logistically resupply its forces in the field, in part because, as I mentioned earlier, right, the, the Taliban's strategy of siege has entailed seizing and cutting off a lot of the major roads around the country. And so it's very dangerous for the Afghan security forces to try and resupply their forces by ground. And so they've been reliant mostly on resupply by air for quite some time. And when the U.S. was present, the U.S. could help with that uh, and did help uh, considerably with moving supplies around the country and resupplying these far-flung outposts. With the U.S. withdrawal, not only have they lost a lot of the airstrike capability, which is right very damaging for morale. If you're on the ground and you get into a firefight and there's no air support coming to help you out, uh, that really weighs on your your mentality, especially if you're an Afghan security force, uh, Afghan soldier. And so, right, that that's one aspect, but they've also not been able to resupply these outposts. And so a lot of the, the reports that you're seeing of units that are, have turned and fled is because the unit has run out of ammunition or run out of food or you know, run out of water in some cases. And so, right, that's also hugely damaging for morale, not knowing if you're going to have air support, not knowing when your next resupply mission is going to come, not knowing what kind of support you have from the center of the country uh, is hugely damaging for morale. So I think Ambassador Newman was spot on on those particular points. In terms of U.S. support for Afghanistan security forces and trying to do something about that morale, Again, what I said earlier is the, the U.S., the going in position, I, I think here from the Biden White House, was that we would continue to pay for Afghanistan security forces and that that's the vast majority of what we would do. Now, that's not an insignificant contribution. I mean, the U.S. for the last few years has contributed roughly $3 billion per year to pay for the vast majority of Afghanistan security forces, salaries, fuel, ammunition, all of these things the U.S. has predominantly paid for. And the Biden White House has requested $3.3 billion, so a slight increase in fiscal year 2022. Uh, and as part of that has already begun providing additional helicopters to bolster the Afghan Air Force. So, you know, the U.S. position going in in, in the immediate aftermath of the withdrawal announcement was we'll continue providing a lot of money and, you know, occasionally we'll give you more stuff like helicopters or potentially more vehicles, et cetera. But again, the rest of it is over to you. And what has emerged over the last couple of months, in part because of this issue of morale, is that may not be enough to 
bolster the Afghan security forces to actually fight in the ways that the, you know, the government and the U.S. would like to see Afghan security forces fight in the field. And so now the question is, okay, what else does the U.S. have to do in order to bolster those forces to get them to stand and fight and effectively counteract the Taliban? This introduction of limited airstrikes seems to be a calibrated attempt to do that, to try and bolster morale, to try and show the Afghan security forces, hey, we haven't totally left, you know, we're willing to help you in these sort of extreme cases. How long that lasts probably depends to some extent on to what degree Afghan security force morale is bolstered by that and to what degree they they fight, uh, stand and fight more than they have been, you know, in a lot of cases to date. And so again, a lot of this, I think, is the administration kind of figuring it out as they go and, you know, dialing up the rheostat of support when they need to and, and probably looking to dial it back when they think they can get away with that. And I suspect that will be the case going forward. But to the last thing I'll say on this, to Ambassador Newman's point, that doesn't really help morale over the longer term. What would be more helpful is to have a, a more well-defined and publicly stated set of support mechanisms, right? So saying that we're going to give you these th- this $3.3 billion in FY22 is great, but it then raises the question, okay, well, what about fiscal year 2023? 20, what about 2024, right? Giving 10 or a dozen airstrikes over the last couple of weeks is great. But it begs the question, are you going to give us airstrikes next week? Are you going to give us airstrikes in September? What about January of next year? So the U.S. really hasn't made the type of long-term commitment to supporting Afghanistan's security forces that would be necessary to counteract reductions in morale and to really bolster morale in the way that Ambassador Newman was talking about. So let's say a month from now, a month and a half from now, we are in a situation where there is no further security deterioration. The status quo more or less remains the same on the ground in Afghanistan than it is today. What are we looking at in terms of the remainder of both U.S. and allied military support? We've heard about over-the-horizon support for in the forms of airstrikes, perhaps, although a little ambigu- ambiguous there. The United States talked about providing funding, providing ongoing training, although most likely remote or off-site out of country, support for maintaining airplanes and helicopters, but again, some logistical problems there about how to actually deliver those. And then we hear about some, while most foreign forces have left already at this point, we hear about some remainders, Turkey, perhaps most notably keeping a presence primarily, by my understanding, to help defend Kabul's international airport. What does the situation on the ground look like come September 12th, 2021, in regards to the foreign troop presence, military presence there? And and what is the United States' capabilities there? We know the United States has talked to other countries in the region about establishing a staging area for, for providing this support. But so far, at least, we haven't seen any clear signs of success on that front. So, so what is the United States and other countries likely to be providing at that point? And really, what is the the possibility of what they can provide given the current political dynamics around around those talks. Yeah, so in terms of remaining military support or presence inside the country, the the US has announced that it won't have more than 650 military personnel inside the embassy and that will not be considered at least by the United States 
quote-unquote military presence, right? Because it's part of the embassy detachment. So some of that will be security forces for the embassy, you know, probably a Marine security embassy guard contingent. Um, some of that will be officers and, and other military folks who are there to oversee the, you know, spending of the $3 billion that I mentioned earlier in support of, of Afghanistan security forces. And some of it will just be normal uniform military personnel that work with folks in the embassy on various U.S. government initiatives in the country. And so that'll be the U.S. quote-unquote military presence, even though the U.S. will consider that part of its diplomatic presence, not, a, not an actual military presence. Uh, in terms of you know other military forces in the country, there have been a lot of reports that the U.S. has asked and supposedly they have agreed uh, for Turkey to provide military forces to secure the airport in Kabul. And this is critically important for a lot of countries, especially Western ones, to maintain their embassies in Kabul. They want to have a secure corridor to the airport. They want to ensure that the airport is militarily secured by a country that they can trust to secure it, right? And this, again, says something about the level of, of trust that these countries have in Afghanistan's own security forces. Um, but they want to have a third party who's there to secure the airport in the event that they would need to evacuate. And that's that's a contingent consideration for a lot of these countries to maintain their embassies. So the Turks appear to have agreed to that. There's some there's been some verbal sparring between them and the Taliban as to you know whether the Taliban will will try to target their forces after the withdrawal of the U.S. and its partners is technically complete. And so that'll remain to be seen what happens there. Uh, but nonetheless, there appears to be some residual Turkish military presence that will exist. But that'll be pretty much it in terms of foreign military presence inside Afghanistan. Now, as you said, the, there's been a lot of reports that the U.S. has been trying to negotiate a presence in a neighboring country in order to continue to you know, collect intelligence and, if need be, prosecute terrorist targets uh, as part of you know, U.S. monitoring and targeting of, of terrorist groups in Afghanistan. There, you know, some people speculate that maybe such a, a position could be established in Pakistan, although I find that pretty unlikely given the history that we've had with U.S. troops in Pakistan over the last 10, 15 years. Others have looked to potentially Uzbekistan or Tajikistan or possibly even Kazakhstan as locations from which the U.S. could could base something. And, and it's clear that the U.S. has been in discussions with those countries, but there's been nothing finalized or announced, at least, with respect to that. The closest that uh, the U.S. appears to have come to establishing any you know, residual uh, support activity for the Afghan security forces um, is there was an announcement that the U.S. has stood up in Qatar, at the airbase in Qatar, a security cooperation assistance office that's under the auspices of a, a U.S. Army One Star, uh, Brigadier General Curtis Buzzard. And, and that office will continue to provide some amount of support and oversight, again, for the spending and implementation of that $3 billion worth of security assistance funding. They may also provide some amount of remote advising support, uh, which is something that one of my CNA colleagues, uh, Alex Powell, and I 
wrote a paper on some time ago uh, and really stems from the experience the U.S. had in Afghanistan since the onset of the COVID pandemic, which is to say when that really started to hit Afghanistan in mid-2020 to protect its personnel, U.S. advisors went into a largely protected status, which is to say they weren't allowed to do face-to-face engagements or advising with their Afghan counterparts anymore. And they went to largely virtual means. So use of Zoom, email, WhatsApp, phone calls, et cetera, to continue to provide whatever advice they could to their Afghan partners. And there's been some speculation that the U.S. may provide some of that type of virtual support especially to the Afghan Air Force, right? There have been reports that the U.S. may try to provide some amount of maintenance advice through the use of Zoom, for example, uh, where contractor maintainers who know a lot about Blackhawks, for example, could use Zoom to virtually instruct Afghan maintainers to try and do basic amounts of maintenance on these helicopters. The extent of that is is not publicly known. The U.S. hasn't sort of made those revelations. There's also been some reporting, again, that hasn't necessarily been confirmed by the government, uh, the U.S. government, to suggest that the U.S. is going to be willing to fly uh, or at least somehow ship Afghan helicopters and other airframes that need more detailed, more in-depth maintenance to uh, foreign locations, to third country locations, whether that could be, again, one of Afghanistan's neighbors or whether the U.S. would fly it to one of the air bases that it uses in the Middle East, for example, in Qatar or the the UAE. Again, no public confirmation on that, but there's been discussion that the U.S. might be willing to do that type of thing as well. So, right, what we do know is the presence in country is going to be minimal. Uh, What we don't know is to what extent will the U.S. military try to use its presence outside of Afghanistan, even as far away as these bases in the Middle East, to continue to provide support to Afghanistan's security forces, either in an advisory capacity or, you know, through the conduct of long-range airstrikes from, again, these bases in the Middle East. And, And all of that appears to still be in flux and will probably be related to what we see unfold in Afghanistan over the next few months. So as the United States departs, we are changing the dynamics of the neighborhood a little bit. You know, Afghanistan sits, shares a border, I should say, with a number of countries with which the United States has difficult relationships. Pakistan being one example, Iran probably being the most prominent example, China as well. Of course, it sits in Central Asia, an area that Russia has considered kind of part of its sphere of influence. And many of these countries have historically criticized U.S. troop presence, arguably undermined it, taken steps to undermine it. I think we all recall reports about Russian bounties being paid by the Taliban on, on U.S. forces, many of which have been debunked uh, subsequently, but nonetheless indicative of the sense that there was has been active opposition to the U.S. presence in Afghanistan, U.S. military presence. But as the United States has moved towards the exits, how have those regional powers reacted? The prospect of a chaotic, unstable, insecure Afghanistan 
certainly raises the the prospect of, if nothing else, refugee flows that have been a problem in past periods of instability in Afghanistan that have caused major problems at Pakistan and elsewhere, but potentially much broader security problems for countries in the region as well. So how have those regional powers reacted and how do they seem postured to form their policy toward Afghanistan, whether to promote stability there or otherwise hedge the risks that might arise from a U.S. withdrawal? Yeah, you're correct that most of Afghanistan's neighbors did not appreciate the U.S. having a presence in Afghanistan. Certainly, Russia did not, Iran, China, Pakistan, less probably less directly hostile in some ways than Russia or Iran, but still not very happy that the U.S. would have a long-term presence there. But all of them were also of the view that while they wanted the U.S. to leave, they didn't want the U.S. to leave precipitously and leave a violent, chaotic mess on their doorstep. And so they are all in the position now of fearing that particular outcome, right? The U.S. announced it was going to leave. It has left pretty quickly after that. I think the, the pace of the withdrawal has surprised a lot of these countries as well. Uh, and so they now find themselves in a position of, of uh, you know, having to look at this emerging kind of chaotic situation on their borders and, you know, trying to figure out what to do about it. And it appears that they all have a plan A, which is, right, they've, they've all publicly said that they don't support the Taliban's, you know, the idea of a Taliban military takeover of Afghanistan. They don't, they've issued statements that say, right, they don't support the reestablishment of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, which is what the Taliban continually calls itself. And so that their plan A appears to be to continue to press for a negotiated settlement in Doha and to continue to say that that's the only way that this conflict will be resolved. But at the same time, they all have a plan B. And the plan B is for them to, you know, cultivate, nurture, or at least maintain ties with various subnational groups in Afghanistan. Uh, some of these are insurgent elements like the Taliban or other insurgent groups in Afghanistan. Some of these are you know, warlords and their associated militias. Some of these are, you know, in the case of Iran, these are forces that Iran cultivated to, Afghan forces that Iran cultivated to go fight on its behalf in Syria, which it has now you know, pushed back into Afghanistan. And so all of these countries, regional countries are cultivating and or at least maintaining ties with these subnational groups. And the danger is if it looks like plan A is not going to work out for them, that they will increasingly revert to enacting these plan Bs, which is to say they'll start funneling more and more support to these subnational groups and the danger there is we could face a return to what existed in the pre-Taliban era back in the 90s, which is to say a widespread, you know, more encompassing civil war in Afghanistan. And, and that's really the worst case outcome for anyone involved, whether it's, you know, any certainly any Afghans, that's the worst case outcome. It would be the worst case outcome for regional countries as well. And it would certainly be the worst case outcome for the U.S. because anytime there's a, a civil war that breaks out like that, it provides huge amounts of space for the like for groups like Al Qaeda and the Islamic State to expand and take advantage of the chaos. I mean, just think of what we've seen in 
you know, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Libya, right, Mali, I mean, all of these uh, states that are in the middle of, of civil wars, it just provides a huge amount of space for these terrorist groups to operate. So that's the worst case outcome for the U.S. as well. It's an interesting paradox, though, that the worst case outcome for all of these countries may still not be one that anyone can avoid, in part because the way that path comes about is everyone acts in their own self-interest as opposed to acting in the collective interest. And, and right, so that's, that's how you end up in that scenario. My hope is that we will instead see what I would describe as, as what I see as the best case outcome over the next year or so, which is that the, you know, the regional countries don't do those things, that they continue to put the majority of their emphasis on what I described as plan A, and that the Afghan security forces and the Taliban slug it out for some period of time until they, you know, exhaust these notions that one side or the other can win militarily. And at that point, hopefully we would start to see a reinvigoration of the peace talks, the peace negotiations in Doha, leading to an eventual ceasefire and new political order in Afghanistan that is inclusive, uh, to include being inclusive of the Taliban. So that's what I see as the best case scenario over the next year or so. It's still going to be a heavily violent one, unfortunately, but you know, one, one hopes, one certainly prays that we don't see the worst case scenario of a broader civil war unfolding. Unfortunately, we will have to leave the conversation there. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It was great talking with you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please take a moment to rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. To gain access to an ad-free version of our podcast and other benefits, consider supporting Lawfare on our Patreon account at www.patreon.com lawfare. This podcast was engineered by Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.